kind of laugh because I changed, uh, I'm going to confess to you all something. I know, I know I'm the teaching pastor here. Um, last night at about 11 o'clock, I, I struggled with this passage all week, just balancing the interpretation. And, um, and then about 11 o'clock, I believe the Lord just kind of shed light on it. And I was like, there it is. <laughs> and, uh, and so my title changed. My, I, I saved it as one title, but then I changed the title here. So you might see next week's title on this lesson, but that's okay. I love that because uh, as I thought about it this morning, just thinking, you know, I hope I never come to a place, even though I um, am in the Word every week, studying it not only to, to teach, but, uh, but for myself, I hope I never come to a place as a pastor where I feel like I know this passage. Because um, I'm still learning. I told Jill while we were away this week, the book of Acts has been so good for me because it's a common book. I've read through it a lot, but I have learned so much in this book, and I'm, I'm very thankful for it personally. I've enjoyed it. We're going to be in Acts 21 as parents are making their way back down. We're going to nearly finish 21, and then the end of 21 will flow right into next week's Paul's defense. So as I just said, last week was a difficult passage to interpret. This week was a difficult passage to interpret, but I believe the Lord gave me help in seeing it. So we're going to, I'm excited to go through this. We're going to go through verses 17 through verse 39. If you want, let's read the passage together and then we'll work our way through it. Luke writes this, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of us who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took his men, took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were completed, almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him, in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? 
Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. We'll stop there. The Lord's gracious hand is what I ended up titling this message because of how he dealt with Paul. And I hope by the end of this passage we will see God's grace in every circumstance, though at first His grace isn't always immediate in the things that we face. I'm going to give you the outline of how we're going to go about dealing with this passage. First of all, we're going to consider Paul's reception with the elders in the situation in Jerusalem. This is really a twofold point. And it's said there, glad reception with James and the elders mixed with legalism and lies. Secondly, we're going to consider Paul's vow, and that's one verse there in verse 26. Was this a lesson in becoming all things to all people, or was it a compromise by Paul? And this is really what I was referring to, what made this passage very difficult for me to interpret until last night at about 11 o'clock. Third, Paul's arrest, verses 27 to 36, and that's God's deliverance of Paul. So let's get going. Let's cover verses 17 through 25. So if you remember last week, Paul had been making his way from all the Gentile cities and churches he'd founded back to Jerusalem because he wanted to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost and celebrate Pentecost. Despite the warnings that the Spirit continually gave him, every city he visited that chains and afflictions awaited him, he nonetheless told his companions, finally, I'm ready to die for the Lord. And so they quit urging him not to go. They settled the matter, saying, let the Lord's will be done. And then verse 15, they got ready, they went up to Jerusalem and stayed with a disciple named Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple, it's said. We don't know if that means if he was a follower of Jesus during the earthly ministry of Jesus, or if he was one of those thousands of Jews converted on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out. But Nonetheless, Nason had, had been known as an early disciple and follower of Christ. And it's interesting that he gladly receives Paul. But in verse 17, it says this, When we'd come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And the following day, James and all the elders were present. It's interesting, just really quickly, I want to note this, that none of the apostles are mentioned as being there. So this is probably about 20 years after the day of Pentecost, roughly. We don't really know. It's been about 10 years since Acts 15, which was the Jerusalem Council. And we're going to visit that. But it's it's been a long time since Paul has been back in Jerusalem, at least 10 years that we know of. None of the other apostles, Peter, any of the others, are mentioned as being there. So by this time, all those apostles had probably begun to spread out upon the earth and fulfill their apostolic ministry. And what they set up in their absence, in the absence of apostolic authority, was an eldership. There's probably roughly 70 elders. That's how many elders were, would have been in the city of Jerusalem. More than likely, they patterned their uh, elders after that. But as we see, we're going to see there's tens of thousands of Jews who had believed, and so 70 elders really isn't that many elders when you consider the myriads of, of Jews who had come to faith at this point. But Paul, it says, when he met with James and the elders, in verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He gave a detailed account of God's doings. And I believe, uh, this isn't stated here, but this is going to be important. If you read 1 Corinthians, for instance, Paul, as he visited all these Gentile churches, he was collecting an offering from the Gentile believers to present to the Jewish believers in an attempt to create unity. And this is probably when he presented that offering to the elders from the Gentile churches. The fact that it's not mentioned will come into play, I believe, here in a minute, but I'll, I'll wait to get there. But nonetheless, Paul went through his three missionary journeys with the brothers, gave a detailed, ordered account of everything that God had done. I'm sure as Paul went through this, it's not a short meeting. As I said, it's been probably 10 years of ministry activity, missions work that Paul is retelling to the elders 
of his trips to Ephesus, which he spent three years in Ephesus alone, of his trips to Athens, to Corinth, to Thessalonica, to Berea, all these cities, he recounted one by one everything that God had done. This is important because um, it's, not just, it's not just a willy-nilly kind of recalling of everything that God had done. It's a very structured, detailed account so that the elders would know specifically God is moving amongst the Gentile people, and it's a consistent work. And this is important because the Jews and Gentiles didn't get along. And so they needed to know God's dealings with the Gentiles in an orderly fashion. And Paul gave it to them. I love that point. But he goes on. In verse 20, it says, when they heard it, they glorified God. I want you to notice that Paul didn't say, he didn't relate everything that he had done among the Gentiles in his ministry. He related everything that God had done among the Gentiles. And when the elders heard it, they glorified God, not Paul. Paul was not seeking fame and glory. He wasn't seeking to boost himself up as some great missionary. He gave glory to God. And so did the elders. It's an important point because humility must be present in any ministry, in any leader, if you're going to lead in a godly way. When you begin to be self-seeking in whatever you do, God won't be there. God is preeminent in all things, and He is to get the glory in all things. He deserves it alone. And when He gets it, your ministry will flourish. When you seek to glorify yourself, it will die. It will become a self-seeking ministry. This is true for our church as well. Every ministry we do, every activity we do, we want it to be God-glorifying, God-orientated. We want to point you Godward, not toward us. Because that's where true joy and true fruitfulness is found for the believer. It's what we see here, at least amongst the leadership at the Jerusalem church. They glorified God. Paul had declared to the Corinthian church this. He said, I worked harder than all the rest of the apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Everywhere Paul went, he was quick to give God the glory in what he did and any effectiveness that would come from his ministry. It's a good point for us to consider because it's so easy for us in our daily activities, if we're successful especially, to take credit for it. And it starts small, but it will end big. You'll take more and more and more of the credit. In your daily activities, whether it's in your home, whether it's in an endeavor you're doing, whether it's in a job that you're successful at, give God the glory. And He will bless it. I also like this. That they glorified God in heaven. James Remember, Paul is talking about the conversions of all these tens of thousands of Gentiles who've been coming to faith. They glorify God over the conversion of of the Gentile people. Matthew Henry is one of the best-known commentators ever. He said this, The conversion of sinners ought to be the matter of our joy and praise as it is of the angels. And he's referring to Luke's Gospel where Luke writes, The angels in heaven basically throw a party when one sinner repents. There's joy in the presence of heaven when sinners turn to God, and there's joy amongst His people when we see the same. That should be one of the driving forces of any church, is the joy when one person repents over their sin and turns to Him. Because it's a life saved, it's a life redeemed, it's a family restored. There's so much joy at the repentance and conversion of people. It's the missionary spirit. It's the blood that flows through the veins of Christ. He himself said this, I came to seek and save the lost. It was a passion, and it should be. And it was for the elders and James as it was for Paul. But they go on. Paul's reception with the elders and the leaders in Jerusalem was a very welcoming and warm reception. But if we were to end there, we'd have a misleading interpretation of Paul's overall reception with the church at Jerusalem. They say this at the end of verse 20. They said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Literally, the word there 
of thousands who have believed is the word myriads. You've heard that word. It's literally, you see how many tens of thousands of people have believed on the Lord. And literally, how many tens of thousands of the Jews have believed on the Lord. That's a huge statement. This is quite the megachurch. But James adds, they're all zealous for the law. Literally, it's the word, they are all zealots for the law. Now this is, in my opinion, where things begin to look gloomy and not good. Zeal for the law is a misguided pursuit. The law is not bad. The law has its place. And Paul has cleared outline its place in the book of Galatians. It was given to lead men to faith in Christ. But once they come to faith, its job is done. And when you become a zealot for the law more than you are a zealot for Christ, there's an issue. We're going to see that. But I want to remind you, as we've already kind of touched on a little bit, of what's transpired from Acts 15 till now, this 10-year period. In Acts 15, you remember there's an issue that some of the believing Jews then brought up, that they were saying, you must be circumcised according to the custom of Moses to be saved. And Paul and Peter both put their foot down and said, no. You are putting them back under this yoke, Peter said, that they nor we could bear. The law does not justify anybody. No one will be justified by God by doing good works and keeping the law. No one. And to put them under that is contrary to the entire purpose and work of Christ. It undermines the gospel. And they fought that vehemently. And after much debate, they came to the conclusion, and James recalls this, they wrote a letter to the Gentile churches and mentioned four things. Three of them had to do with ritual cleansing of food. The kosher diet. Don't eat things with blood, things that have been strangled, or things that have been sacrificed to idols. The fourth was keep free from sexual immorality. That would have greatly derailed their own walk and testimony with Christ when you're living in sexual sin. But the other three were concession. It was similar to Paul writing to the Corinthian church, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols if it's causing your brother to stumble. There's no such thing as an idol. We know there's only one God, but if it causes your brother to stumble, don't do it. Look rather not to your freedom to do something. Look to the love you should have for your brother to determine your freedom. That was what the Acts 15 letter was asking the Gentiles to observe. Hey, this is a huge stumbling block for Jews. If you eat food, sacrifice to idols, things with blood, when you're around them, don't do it. Okay, we can do that. No problem. Out of love for you, no problem. It's a good compromise. James mentions that. That they're not asking what he's asking Paul to do. He's not asking him to put the Gentiles under this zeal for the law, but he is pointing out the Jewish believers are all zealots for the law. In verse 21, he says this, They've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So these were Jewish believers. I don't have a doubt about that. You can be a believer and fall into legalism. That much is true. But the, this statement is so intriguing to me, verse 21. There's non-believing Jews informing believing Jews of who Paul is and what he's doing abroad. And what's sad to me is that these believing Jews are quicker to give ear to these non-believing Jews than they are to Paul himself. That's sad. Because what's, what they've been told is both true and false. Paul didn't forsake the law, he put it in its place. The law is good, the law is right, the law is holy. When you use it rightfully, knowing this, he wrote Timothy, it's for the wicked, it's not for the righteous. You don't have to tell a righteous person, don't murder. They're not murdering. The laws for sinners, he said. The righteous who've been redeemed by Christ aren't under that yoke. They walk in the Spirit who will never lead them into sin. Over and over and over in Paul's writings, he put the law in its proper place. So no, he didn't observe the law. And yes, he told them, you don't need the law anymore when you've come to faith. The Spirit of God will lead you in truth and righteousness. He's sufficient. And that's everywhere in his writings. 
But did Paul violate the law? Not at all. And with those Jews who were still observing parts of it, he would submit and do it for their conscience' sake. But he never, he never argued that the law has a place in that way. So this is a very tricky statement to interpret. It was what Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the end times, people will come up who will teach myths, Paul says. And that word is, is truth woven together with error. It's so hard to discern between these statements because yes, there's some truth to it, but there's a lot of error too. How do you discern and cut through that? That's what's going on here. So these non-believing Jews have been telling the believing Jews in Jerusalem, be careful of that man Paul. It's interesting to note, the things they accused Paul of are the same things they accused Jesus of. Abandoning the law, abandoning the temple. It's what they accused Jesus of in his own trial. Trumped up charges. It's what happened also to the apostles at the beginning of the book of Acts. Some things never change. So James then recommends something for Paul to do. He says this, What is to be done in verse 22? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Let me deal quickly with what this vow is. This is a reference to the Nazarite vow. This was a voluntary vow that usually would last 30 days, but you could pick how long you wanted to do. There were some men in Scripture who were Nazarites from birth their entire life. Samson, Samuel are examples of that. They were Nazarites for life. Well, what did this Nazarite vow entail? I've got the reference there for you, but I'm going to summarize Essentially, it was a vow to separate yourself for the Lord for a period of time, determined by the one taking the vow. It would be similar to you setting aside time to fast and seek the Lord over something. It's a, it's a period of separation where you are cutting off all these things so that you may focus on the Lord. It's a noble vow. It could be a week. It could be a lifetime. It included this. You had to abstain from wine and strong drink. You couldn't eat grapes, raisins, or any juice from the grapes, even down to the seeds and grape skins. No razor was allowed to touch your head for the period of the vow. You had to let it grow out. Once the vow was completed, there was a ceremony in the temple where you shaved your head. It was shaved by a priest. This is what's referred to in James. For Paul to pay their expenses, because it was costly. And these poor Jewish believers didn't have the money to pay for this Ceremony. They were, avoid, they were to avoid contact with the dead. Even if your mother or father were to die, you were not to go to them. If you did, you'd break your vow and you'd have to start it over. But here's where this gets difficult for me. Up till then, I can see Paul making concessions saying, no problem. But at the end of the Nazarite vow, there were three offerings that had to be made. First, you were to take a male lamb, one-year-old, without spot, as a burnt offering. Second, you were to take an ewe lamb, one-year-old, without spot, as a sin offering. And third, you were to take one ram, a year old, without blemish, as a peace offering. You were also to take other things such as unleavened bread and flour. We're not going to cover that. Those three offerings, though, are where this gets hard for me. Because everywhere in Scripture... Blood sacrifices from animals are completely useless. The sacrifice of Christ put an end to all that. And Paul taught that, as did the rest of the Scripture. I have a hard time understanding how Paul could do that. I'll give you my answer here in a little bit. But I, first, I want you to notice what James suggested. 
It was really an accommodation of their legalism. Now here's the point, and here's where it gets tough, so follow me with this. The Jerusalem church was the mother church. And if you look at how Paul has grown, Paul was a a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a teacher of the law. He was blameless according to the law. And yet when he came to faith in Christ, what happened to him? He started seeing the law in its right place and being sanctified and growing out of it. What's happening in the Jewish church here in Jerusalem is just the opposite. Pentecost, 20 years earlier, they were freed. But rather than progressing in their freedom in Christ, what do we see happening at this church? No, they're going back to the law and becoming zealots again for that which they could never do. You see the problem? This is, this is what happens in churches when we hold so strongly to our traditions and programs and da-da-da-da-da. And our zeal becomes misplaced. Rather than having a zeal for Christ alone, it becomes on every other thing, and we become slowly drawn away from the Lord. So that that church, which was the mother church 20 years earlier, where freedom was first expressed at Pentecost with the giving of the Spirit, now they're right back where they started. In my estimation, this is a terrible statement from James. A terrible admission. But James doesn't ask Paul, Paul, will you help us understand the place and purpose of the law? No, James asks him, hey, will you accommodate our legalism? Because this was a hotbed situation. Tens of thousands of Jewish believers are present. Up to two million Jews in total would be present in Jerusalem at this time during Pentecost. If Paul were to come in and start putting into perspective what the law really is, boom, it's like a match with dry hay. It could blow up in their face. In fact, Paul had been a part of that at one time, you remember? He himself ignited a fire in Jerusalem at one point and caused the Christians to scatter. Paul understood what was at stake. So James is really asking Paul to accommodate where they were at. Now, this is where it's hard, the balance for me. There are times you have to accommodate that. Because believers might still be in sin when they come to faith. And there's a period where as a church, you bear with them. But at some point, you expect them to mature out of it. The second point there was so that Paul might be observed by these legalists to also live in observance of the law. As I said, that's both true and false. Paul did fulfill the law, but it was not by works of the law. It was not by these ceremonial offerings. He fulfilled it by faith. And that's what he taught. The law is fulfilled by walking in the Spirit and loving each other. Paul didn't observe the law in a ceremonial fashion as they are suggesting he did. He didn't. He had put those things aside. In fact, he said as much to the Philippian church, all that stuff that I pursued, I count as rubbish now. Literally dung. So you see why this is difficult, what James is asking. Paul didn't observe the law in the ceremonial sense. He didn't violate it. It was fulfilled in another way, by faith. But he didn't observe it ceremonially. Certainly that would have been true with Paul's travels among the Gentiles. Remember what Peter said to the Jerusalem church when he went into Cornelius? What the, what the zealots of the law charged Peter with? You went in and ate with Gentiles. That's unlawful. Paul's been living for years eating with Gentiles. He didn't observe the law. <laughs> Paul was someone who, know, who knew both the Jewish word, world and the Gentile world better than any man. And what he was asked by James, it wasn't to teach us more of the true purpose of the law like he had done to the Galatian church, Galatians 3, 23 and 29, or through 29, you can look it up. James didn't ask Paul to expound on Christ being the sum and substance and fulfillment of all that was in the law, which is a beautiful study. James didn't ask Paul with all of his wisdom to expound on that. 
so as to lead them into true freedom that's in Christ. It wasn't to expound on the mystery now being revealed that Christ is making one body for himself, both Jews and Gentiles. There is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there's no female, no male. Remember Paul's statements in that? He wrote to the Ephesian church, this is a great mystery, but it's beautiful. James didn't ask Paul to expound on that. He asked him to do and accommodate their legalism. I want to touch on this, that this reasoning of James always sounds wise. Legalism always does. There's always a certain logic to legalistic thinking. It often starts out with the most noble of intentions, but it will always end in failure or worse, ruin. James is quick to point out, he's not asking the Gentiles to observe it. That's great. Then why are you still asking the Jews to observe it? It's a good question. Should their conscience, I want to read some scriptures to you. Should their conscience not have been smitten offering sin offerings in the temple while their Lord professed to be their own Passover lamb? Think about that. Should their conscience not have been struck as they're offering this animal as though there's any value in its blood when they profess to worship the living Christ who was crucified for them? Here's what Hebrews 10.14 says, By a single offering, He, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let me ask you this. Should not the Jews' conscience been grieved at offering burnt offerings when Christ, Hebrews also says, 9.26, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Should not these Jews have been alarmed at their peace offering to God with the blood of animals when Paul himself had wrote, in him... The fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's Colossians 1. And here they're offering an animal as though it's peace offering. There's no value to it. Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. But there's more scriptures you could look at. I won't take the time. Hebrews 7, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10 is full of these kind of statements, as well as Paul's writing. Paul had wrote this to the Romans, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. Paul himself would say of the Jews in Romans 9, I bear witness to them. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He could have said that same, same statement to these Jews in Jerusalem. You have a zeal for God, you're zealous for the law, but it's not according to knowledge. And yet these were believers. Why didn't James ask Paul, teach us? On the other hand, turn to 1 Corinthians 9 with me. And here's where the challenge of interpretation begins. If anyone, by the way, tells you that interpreting Scripture is easy, don't believe them. It's not. (laughs) In 1 Corinthians 9, Let me ask you this question. Is this not an example of becoming all things to all people? 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19, Paul wrote this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Now listen to this. To those under the law... I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. So was Paul compromising in doing this? Or was he becoming all things to all people? Here's where I landed. In studying this passage, I had to wrestle with that question. Why is this not an example, or why is this an example of Paul becoming as one under the law? I must confess, I'm going to read this to you so that you can follow it. I am a Gentile making my judgment about Jewish customs. 
Those who hold that this was not a compromise, either by the Jerusalem church or Paul, argue that this was an issue of liberty, of conscience, and Paul becoming all things to all people. They argue that God himself was graciously allowing and bearing with the practice of these Jewish believers, knowing how difficult it was for them to break from the law. I agree with that. I agree with this point. And last, those who say this was not a compromise argue that it would all come to an end anyway in a few short years. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed by the Romans and sacrifices would come to an end. I agree with that. On the other hand, what I can't ignore as a Gentile is that offering the blood of animals, rams, and goats is an absolute affront to the sacrifice of Christ. And the finality of Jesus' own sacrifice. Moreover, if Paul's intent was to win them over, as he says in Corinthians, in this case, it did just the opposite. Their last words to Paul were away with him. Here's my answer. I've wrestled with this question all week, and here's what I believe. I think Paul had the freedom to do this as an accommodation to them. However, because Jerusalem is not a new believer, and there is that expectation of growth out of it, the Lord didn't allow it to happen. So I don't think Paul was compromising, but I do think that it was time that the Lord says, enough. Does that make sense? Let me give you some examples to help. When you came to faith in the Lord, how many of you woke up the next day perfectly sinless? Okay, good. I hope I didn't see any hands there. When you're doing an honest evaluation of your own life, can you not look back and say, you know what, there were some things in my life that went away immediately, but there were other things in my life that I continued in for some time, and the Lord graciously bore with me. That's my testimony. The Lord is gracious, as He was with the Jewish believers, understanding that stronghold that the law had on them. But it's equally true that the law is of no value anymore. Hebrews literally says it was useless to purify your conscience. But the Lord allowed it for a season. Paul, understanding that being a Jew, was doing the right thing and becoming all things to all people and bearing with them. And yet the Lord overruled and said no. Because I don't know if you noticed in our passage back in Acts 21, Paul never got to offer those sacrifices. The mob prohibited him. See, I have a view of God's sovereignty. As I said last week, there is no plan B with God's sovereignty. This is exactly God's dealing in saving Paul from enabling this Jewish church to become even more legalistic. God knew their heart, and he said his time is up. I have freed you from these things. Walk in it. And so Paul's delivered how? By mob rule and the chains of the Romans. That's sovereignty. And that's beautiful to me. Going back to our illustration, perhaps when you look at your own life, you were addicted to some substance, substance abuse. Maybe it was pornography. Maybe it was lust for money. Maybe it was an issue with a quick temper. Maybe it was legalism. Maybe as a parent, you discipline your kids in a heavy-handed, legalistic manner, and the Lord's trying to tell you, do it with grace and truth. Maybe you fill in the blank. We all have those sins in our life that continue longer because they are more rooted in us. But God, understand this, God will examine and creep into every crook and nanny of your heart. He will shine His light and truth in everything. He will be Lord of all. He might bear with some areas of your life longer than others, but He will deal with everything eventually. And I think that's what's happening in the Jerusalem church now. Nothing in our lives is hidden from Him. He will bring it to light So the question remains, how far do we go in becoming all things to all people? And my answer is, I don't know. I think that's 
a question, one, answered by your own conscience, two, answered by the Lord's sovereignty. Here's two things to keep in mind, though. One, if something would cause you to sin, then you've gone too far. If something would, were to cause you to sin in becoming all things to all people, it's too far. Second, if something causes or threatens the truths of the gospel, it's too far. The gospel must always be upheld. That's why Paul in Acts 15 would not back down, the scripture says, from those Jews who said you must be circumcised to be saved. No, you don't. And I will die on that hill to preserve the gospel. And that's what Paul wrote. I have an example, personal example to give you. I was at one point uh, when I was a youth pastor doing a lot of ministry at a local school here. And uh, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't remember saying what I was accused of saying, but I told the superintendent, I'm sure I did say it. I was called into his office one day after school. I'd been subbing all week for the Bible class. And he said, I, I've had a complaint against a parent that you spoke out against Joel Osteen. I said, I don't remember speaking out against him, but I probably did. And uh, he said, well, you can't do that here. We have a lot of people at this school who like him. I said, but he's a heretic. And Scripture tells me to do that, to identify those wolves in sheep's clothing. Why? To preserve the flock. Now, to be sure, Joel Osteen is a different issue than someone you may just disagree with on points of doctrine. Joel Osteen preaches a different gospel. And so if you have his books, throw them away. He is not a believer. And I have no problem saying that. But this man was asking me to do something that Scripture clearly tells me I should do to identify those kind of people, to warn the flock of those kind of people. There's warnings everywhere in Scripture. So I went home that night vexed. What do I do? Because ministry was going well, I was gaining lots of ministry opportunities. And if I accommodate this man, it would be a compromise for me. If I don't, I lose the ministry opportunity. I was in a position. What do I do? And my brother gave me some very good advice. He said, Seth, if you compromise this in order to save a ministry, you'll lose it all. But if you stay true and don't compromise, the Lord will raise up new ministry for you. So I went back the next day. I told the superintendent, I can't do what you're asking me to do. He said, then you're not welcome here. Okay. And I lost that ministry. And I'm perfectly fine with that. And guess what? The Lord did raise up new ministry for me. And He preserved me through it all. I hope that illustration helps and that you may be able to examine your own life. When, are, when, are, when is it too far for me? How far do I go in becoming all things to all people? It's not a, a black and white answer. Paul could eat meat sacrificed to idols, but he says, you know what? Younger believers, their conscience might be afflicted and they can't do it. It's okay. Then don't do it. So moving on. Paul's arrest, verse 27 and following. We get there, here we go. So when the seven days were almost completed, like I said, it was at the end of the purification process, Paul would have had to make these sacrifices. He never got to. They were almost completed. Notice, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. So it wasn't the Jews from Jerusalem. It wasn't Jewish believers in Jerusalem. It was Jews from Asia. So all those Jews that we read about in Paul's missionary journeys that were following him, persecuting him, we're in, in Jerusalem during Pentecost, and they recognize Paul. Ah, we know who you are. But now, they have the upper hand. Why? Because there's millions of Jews zealous for the law here. And it didn't take much for them to say, Men of Israel, help! <laughs> and bring them all rushing in against Paul. It was a violent clash. Literally, they were trying to rip Paul limb from limb. Now, let me point this out to you. When you fall into legalism, you have no problem becoming like that person. In violation of the law, this is their hypocrisy. In violation of the law, they're trying to kill Paul in the temple. 
They had to be pushed out of the inner courts where the sacrifices were made. It says the gates were shut. But it's still unlawful for them to do what they were doing to Paul. That's what legalism is. It's hypocrisy. You think you're keeping the law while you violate it in other areas of your life. No one can keep the law. These were hypocrites. But they hated Paul. They had the mob rule. And they went after him. It was a violent, violent clash. Now I'll say this. It's important to note that the instigation, like I said, was not the legalistic Jewish believers. It was Jews from Asia. Whoever and wherever they were from, they had opposed Paul and definitely used the advantage of all those Jews gathered together to come against him. But it's almost just as telling that what we don't read is that the Jewish believers stepped in to help Paul. Just a few chapters ago in the book of Acts, we read about another mob in Ephesus. You remember that? And we read in that account, all of Ephesus, which was no small town, came together against the Christians there, dragged them into the amphitheater. And you know what it testifies about Paul? He wanted to run in there and save them. And he had to be withheld from doing it. Unfortunately, we don't read anything like that or that same sentiment from these Jewish believers for Paul. If there was tens of thousands of Jewish believers, it would not have taken very much for them to step in and help this man. But we don't read one person doing it. This is where legalism takes you. Legalism steals the love of God from your heart. And it leaves you cold and ruthless and dead. Here's an apostle. Understand this. Here's an apostle he wrote to the Galatian church who bore in his body the marks of Jesus. He had suffered for his Lord. He had preached his Lord. And these legalistic Jewish believers could not come to his aid as a fellow brother. It's telling to me. It's telling. That's what legalism does. Today, we do the same thing, though. You know you're walking in legalism when, when there's maybe doctrinal differences, maybe differences of whatever, but one Christian or church might be being attacked and we just kind of stand idly by. They deserve it. They're compromisers. That's legalism. Rather than coming to them and say, hey, can we pray for you? How can we help you? What can we do? That's what the love of Christ does. It compels you to action out of love for your brother. Greater love has no one than this, right? And he who lays his life down for his friends. Unfortunately, we don't see that at all. I'll give you an example, illustrative example from history. Everyone's heard of Martin Luther, father of the Reformation. So much of what he did, we are direct inheritance of. Much to be thankful for, for what this man did. But Martin Luther didn't make a clean break from everything. And one of the greatest things he didn't make a clean break from was the Catholic teaching of transubstantiation, which is this. They believe that the blood and body of Christ, or the wine and communion, and the bread and communion, is literally turned into the blood and body of Christ. Ulrich Zwingli, who was the father of the Reformation in Sweden, held what I would hold to, that no, the wine and bread of communion is symbolic of the blood and body of Christ. It doesn't turn into the blood and body of Christ, like Luther and the Roman church still teach today. I'm going to read a sad quote to you from Martin Luther to illustrate how dogmatism affects you. Here's what Luther said, I would rather drink blood with the Pope than wine with Zwingli. Shocking. We owe a lot to Luther, but he's wrong. He's wrong. That's what happens over dogmatic legalism. Point B there, misinterpreted by the Romans. This is a quick point. The text says in verse 31, as they were seeking to kill Paul, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So the tribune took at once soldiers and centurions. Now understand, 
there was at least two centurions, because it's plural. There could have been more centurions, but a centurion was a leader of 100 soldiers. So there was at a minimum 200 soldiers that went down to rescue Paul. That's how large and violent this crowd was. Maybe more. At least 200 soldiers had to go down there to rescue Paul. So when the Jews saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating him. And the tribune came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And because he could not learn the facts, because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, now I can't wait to preach this next week. I love this. Paul had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Poor Paul. Do you not get the feeling that Paul was almost all alone? In Jerusalem. We know the elders and James were happy to see him, but not many others were. Even the Romans didn't really quite understand who Paul was. They assumed him to be an Egyptian leader of assassins. Just a quick summary of that. There was an Egyptian who posed as a prophet and gained a following of at least 4,000, if not more, Jews. And what they would do is they would hide daggers under their clothes and go into a crowd and secretly stab Roman soldiers trying to kill them and then blend in into the crowd and flee. And so what the tribune is assuming is that the Jews actually caught the leader of these guys trying to do his trade in the crowd and were beating him. Sorry, that's not me. <laughs> he escaped again, I guess. So he's misinterpreted by the Romans. Though almost everyone else had forsaken Paul, God was with him. And these chains and this mob rule was actually God's sovereign purpose of delivering Paul out of the hands of the Jews and into his will. This blows my mind. The first and immediate reason that this was appointed by God was for prohibiting Paul from making these sacrifices. Paul had the freedom to do it. But God sovereignly said, it's over. I'm dealing with the Jerusalem church now. They've had 20 years to abandon this useless sacrificial system. I paid for it already. That was the immediate reason. In my opinion, if Paul had gone through with it at this point in the church's uh, decline, it would have been disastrous. One of the worst things you can do for a legalist is affirm their legalism because now they're justified. Rather, what I wish James would have said is, Paul, can you be blunt with us? What place has the law for us? Speak the truth to us in love. There's a force when someone is blunt with you, but they do it with gentleness and humility and a true love. There's a power in that. Have you ever experienced that? That's what the church at Jerusalem needed. Even if it started a fire amongst those legalistic, non-believing Jews, it would have been right. Christ was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And for Paul, who had preached, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, to have gone through with that would have seriously compromised his gospel. So I think it was God's wisdom and mercy to have intervened and prohibited Paul from doing this, even if that intervention had to be with chains and beatings. Second, it was God's sovereign plan. In fact, Paul would write to the Philippian church in chapter 1, verse 12 to 14. He tells the church this, Now, I want you to know, brothers, that my chains have actually meant the furtherance of the gospel. <laughs> There's God's wisdom for you. He says, and, and the brothers, seeing my affliction, are actually more empowered to preach with boldness through this. You see, we can look on the outside at this situation and say, Man, poor Paul. Rather, what we should be saying is, Wow, God, you have a way of working with men. <laughs> Your plan is so far beyond what I would have guessed. Romans 8, 28, you turn all things to work together for good to those who love you. 
Some concluding applications. First, if we were to look at this, this is what I was just saying, right? Paul's beating at the hands of the Jews and the chains he was from here on out to be put in. It would seem a gloomy and sad fate. But Christian, here's the application for you. You might have chains around your arms, but as Paul said, the Word of God is not chained. There is nothing that will prohibit you in your walk with the Lord. I think this was a wise, merciful intervention by God. Let me ask you this. Are there not situations in your past that you can look on and see the merciful hand of God having delivered you from? Let me give you some examples. One for me that I can look on. I was very close to transferring schools to go be a baseball coach at my old high school. And I was playing in a basketball game, which I hate basketball. And I vowed never to play it again after this. And I haven't. I go up to try and block a shot, land on a guy's ankle, crack my ankle, tear every ligament. Jana saw it. It was pretty ugly. You can ask her. Took me out. I didn't go up to Albuquerque to coach baseball. I couldn't. I was out for at least 12 weeks. But after I got my cast and everything off in March, I had a visit with my pastor at the time who asked me to come to the church and be the youth pastor. At the time, I was so sad. I look back on it now and say, wow, God, you have a wise way of keeping me from doing something I shouldn't have, even if it was through a fractured ankle. What about you? Maybe you can look at past relationships that you're in. Maybe they had an extremely painful breakup, but you can say, God, thank you. That's not who I should have been with. Maybe it was something else, something different. You can always find something in God's way when you look back on it in hindsight. Say, man, thank you, Lord. I would not have done that had you not intervened. Second, I want to balance my position and interpretation with why I think Paul would have nearly stumbled here. Romans 9, 1-5, Paul's great love and unceasing sorrow of heart for the Jews. Paul loved his brethren. And his humility is seen here. He is willing to become all things to all people that he might win them. But there's a deep and important lesson here to learn. Men like Paul, who would never compromise the truth in order to save their own life, listen to this, you might nevertheless be prone to a backdoor temptation in accommodating sin when they should, um, to accommodate sin when you should not in order to save someone else's life. You might have such love for someone else, in other words, that it might be difficult for you to say no. What you're doing is wrong. You might be trying to become all things to all people and accommodate these sinful things in someone else's life that you love. I think, especially of parents to children, we have an easy way of looking at our own children and overlooking their issues, but looking at someone else's children and say, wow, they got bad kids. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a friend. The point is this. Out of your love for that person, make sure that you're not accommodating something you shouldn't in their life. Maybe ask them to do that to you. Don't accommodate things in my life that are wrong simply because you love me. I need what Proverbs says is someone to rebuke me to my face, not stab me behind my back. That's what love does. That's what Jesus does for us. He never glosses over our issues. Sometimes He sternly warns us, and sometimes it's that still small voice dealing with our conscience, bearing with us. But He always tells us the truth. There's so much to this point that could be made. The Jerusalem church was not simply struggling with the place and purpose of the law. They were running back to it and becoming zealots for it. And that simply has no place in the believer. They, as Paul told the Galatian church, were falling from grace. The covenant of grace. Back to the covenant of law. Do not justify error or sin. You don't always have to point it out. That's not what I'm saying. You don't need to be that lawgiver, even if you do it in a gentle voice. You don't need to be that one pointing out every mistake in everybody's life. 
But there is a time where you do. This is written into our mission statement and our statement of faith. We don't want to be that church that's the church sin-sniffing. <laughs> that's not my place. However, as a pastor, if I see you persisting in sin, can I really tell you I love you and let you continue to do that? No. I want to come gently to you and say, hey, I know where you're at. I know what you're struggling with. I've been there. But it's not right. That's the line. And sometimes it's hard to find. So, I think that's what drove Paul to where he was at. And last of all, I'll end with this. Avoid compromise at all costs. First, love must ever be loyal to the truth. I think of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. He says, I have. Which ones? Well, you know, honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't lie. Da, da, da. Oh, yeah, I've done all that. But Jesus, knowing his heart, said, then go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Because that was his God, his money. And you know what the text says? That that young man went away sorrowful. Why? Because he couldn't part from his God. But you know what the text also says? Jesus let him walk. He was loyal to the truth. It didn't diminish Jesus' love for that young man. It didn't diminish Jesus' compassion for that young man. It doesn't take away from the fact that if that man had parted from that idol of his life, Jesus would have been right there. Yes, he would have. But that young man wasn't willing to part from that God. So Jesus let him go. And there are countless millions who walk themselves through the gates of hell because they're not willing to turn. And Jesus lets them. Jesus himself said, broad is the way and wide is the path that leads to destruction and many go through it. Love must ever be loyal to the truth. And church, this is a hard point for us. We love people. We want to help people. We bear with people. But there also comes a time when we must say no to stuff. We cannot do that. And we can't go there with you. And that's hard. The Lord will test this church in that. He will test you individually in that. Love must be ever loyal to the truth. We simply can't say yes to every single thing. Second point there, the church at Jerusalem is a sad illustration of where compromise takes you. They were more comfortable with the enemies of Christ yelling, Paul is an enemy, come help us, than they were with Paul himself, who was a loyal disciple. They were more zealous for the law than they were for the work that had finished it. James' statement to Paul that the myriads of Jews who were believers were all zealous for the law is terribly revealing of their spiritual infancy at best and regress and apostasy at worst. Scripture says that the law was a shadow of the substance which belonged to Jesus their Lord. How could you show such zeal for something that is finished and never had power to take away your sin? This church, unfortunately, 20 years later, had not grown past anything. The warning for us is this, that can happen to us. Where is your zeal today? As we examine our life, we have zeal and passion for so many things in our life. And we spend our energy, we spend our time, we spend our affection on all these things. And if we've seen one thing with Paul, he was zealous for Jesus. As he said in the passage last week, I am ready to go there and die for my Lord. He was single-minded in purpose and passion. This church had a misplaced zeal, as he had said to the Romans. But we're going to finish out now. Paul's just been put in chains. He will get out of chains, but he won't really get out of arrest from this point on that we know of. So Paul's life is here forward known as a prisoner, and most of the time a prisoner in chains. And yet what we find with Paul is effectiveness in ministry, joy in the Lord, peace, 
fruitfulness. It's an amazing contrast to how we usually think of a good life. But I'm excited to get into it. With that, I'll invite the worship team up and close us in prayer. And pray for us as a church, Lord. Father, that you would purify the love of our heart to burn away all that dross that consumes us, to focus our passion, our zeal on you. Because yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the praise. You alone accomplished our salvation, and it is to you alone that we owe our allegiance. We stand and marvel at the righteousness of Christ who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That His one sacrifice offered for all time is effective for us for all time. That those things that we pursue of vanity that are coming to an end, yet when we turn to You, our Lord, those things that we pursue in Christ are eternal. Thank You for giving us such an opportunity as a church, as an individual. Father, help us to elevate our passion, our zeal, upward, Christward, even if it's costly. Even if the myriads of people might be angry with us. Father, let us nonetheless do it with humility, with great respect and gentleness, Help us to find that balance in this culture as as a church where we are uncompromising in our love and our patience. As Augustine said, patience is the crown of wisdom. Father, we want to bear with one another in love, as Paul also wrote. We want to bear with one another in our struggles and come alongside each other to comfort, to exhort, to help, to carry each other's burdens. But yet, Lord, help us to not compromise while doing so. And instead of accommodating those things, Father, help us to be a church that helps pull people out of those things into a more sure ground. Father, I pray you give us a serious mind with this because this is something many churches don't even deal with, don't equip their people to deal with and wrestle with, but we must because sin kills and you came to save and free us from it. Thank you, Lord. Father, may this time of song and worship be offered up to you as we look to your coming. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.